science. What a joy it is to uh, be with you again this Monday afternoon for another edition of uh, Love and Science. And as I said, I'm joined by Josh Warren, Jamie Thakra. Uh, Jamie, you're in for your um, l- last Monday in the month gig. Yes, so, I am. Yeah. Thank you for having me well, back always, so regularly. <laughs> always lovely to see you. And um, I'm just, what, what, anything exciting to report? Um, so I have been, um, I, every time I come on, I do update you on the progress of my clinical study that I'm running. Oh, yes. And I finally recruited somebody to start my experiments next week. Just remind us what your experiments are. So I'm studying how stress hormones affect um, working memory and um, processing of emotional faces and cognition in healthy people. I can't remember what you just said. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry. I'm so stressed. Uh, but but it's, it's a very exciting study. Yeah. Where I'm looking at people's brains and making them do stuff Yeah. <laughs> while I do that. No, so. a, re- a really important thing, because uh, the more stressed we are, the worse we function in all kinds of ways. And, is, well, exactly. And, and, and so memory what I'm a major to, part of that. That's exactly right. So what I'm trying to understand is why do stress hormones interfere with the way that we can process emotion and why our working memory might be different during different parts of a um, stress pulse because we receive our stress hormones in little bursts rather than it being sort of a continuous release and what I'm trying to understand is what is it about this bursting activity that firstly helps healthy people function and so people who don't suffer from Um, issues of working memory and emotion because of stress um, but also looking at how this pulsing might then be related to the pathology so how is stress actually affecting these processes and it's moving on so so exactly I'm finally after three years of my PhD actually getting somebody in to start my experiment so the next sort of 12 weeks are going to be very exciting and jam-packed so I'm very excited. When you, when you say you're getting someone in, is that going to be your guinea pig? <laughs> so I'm actually going to have... <laughs> do they um, know a what you're going to do to them? <laughs> no, I actually, I'm actually going to have 21 participants, um, but the recruitment criteria for a study like mine is extremely strict. Um, so I found it really hard to find people that qualify to do my research because what I do is I take healthy people and I give them um, a medication that actually mutes their natural cortisol production. Cortisol is our primary stress hormone um, and it's not as scary as that sounds because I actually <laughs> give them a pump which delivers cortisol back to them in a rhythm similar to what they would receive as a healthy person and the reason I do this because it seems like sort of a roundabout way of doing yeah. you know, why not just measure people free running and that's because everybody actually has a very different cortisol rhythm depending on their daily habits and their daily routine so if you're an early morning person you know your first bur- burst of cor- cortisol might be more at like sort of 2 a.m. than 3 a.m. Um, and then actually your sleep-wake cycle is all offset by an hour to the next person. Right. So the way that I'm, by doing what I'm doing, so blocking their natural synthesis and replacing it, um, I'm actually making all the participants the same. 
Um, mm. So that makes it really scientifically rigorous, so I can see where exactly how yeah. much cortisol a, sing- a person yeah. has received and where they are in that rhythm. Where the changes are. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I saw a, uh, someone talking the other day about how, you know, because we, we're used to this idea that uh, stress above a certain limit can be damaging to us in all kinds of ways and, and as you say you're looking at how it affects memory and they were saying well well, well actually uh, their their uh, theory or the the thing that they've been working on is that um, stress um, is damaging if you think it is damaging to you have you come across this yeah so I have heard this um, what do you I think? think there's a lot of um, conflicting ideas about stress you know in neuroscience and psychology and also collaboratively between neuroscience and psychology um and actually what we think is that um stress is so multifaceted that stress hormones act on so many different parts of the body not just different parts of the brain um they actually are they have so many different effects um that it's hard to sort of elucidate one from the other it's hard to find out exactly what's going on and because of the way that stress hormones act um, we can't hone in on whether an activity is purely psychological or it is actually a biological process. But from what we do understand about stress hormones is that they have so their their biological effect really does dictate the way the brain is able to process that psychologically. So it's, it's, it's this brain and mind thing. You know, mm. how do you differentiate the two and how you can't yeah. really pull them apart? And I think that's a big thing nowadays where before neuroscience and psychology were actually thought of as two different subjects, but actually you can't treat the mind without understanding the brain and vice versa. Mm. So that's the kind of research that I'm doing now in sort of applied neuropsychology, which is where we're trying to incorporate these two fields. And, you know, they're actually really harmonious and they're not so separated. Mm. So we're just trying to see how these two things interact. And, And Josh, how stressed are you today? Well, this, after, this after, <laughs> after listening to you, Jamie, that, that's really stressed me out, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's, that's quite all right. Well, um, I, I, I've, I've had a good week. I, I would love to say I've had as productive a week as you have, Jamie, but, um, but I haven't. I, I did have quite an exciting day yesterday, though. I was, uh, I was down the pub having, having Sunday lunch with my, with my grandparents, which, uh, which I believe they're listening, so shout out to you too if you're listening. Um, and hello, Josh's grandparents. <laughs> Hi, Josh's grandparents. Hello. <laughs> and um, across the bar, when I went to get when going to get a drink, was um, was Chris Marshall, who is the uh, who's the the guy on telly who plays the the fellow in Death and Paradise, and the one in Love Actually who uh, who plays Colin in Love Actually. I think a lot of people might know. Yes. But yeah. yeah. So and then so that was quite interesting. I managed to get a, a quick picture with Chris Marshall, which 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 I nerded out a little bit and fangirled, but that was quite good. Was he also <laughs> the guy that was the eldest son in my family? Yes, yeah, yes, in my I family, know, yeah. You mean. That's the yeah. one. Yeah, so that, that was quite an interesting day yesterday, just having a uh, nice pint with, with Chris Marshall. That was good. That was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> He's going, I met this really weird guy. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, if you're listening, c- come on down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I wasn't staring at you too much. 
<laughs> well, look, let's, let's do some science uh, in the news, which is what we do on uh, Love and Science. And uh, I'm sorry, but we've got to start with a, a bit of a grim story uh, because um, the, the source we're looking at, but it's all over the place. The Met Office researchers, this is from the BBC, the Met Office researchers um, expect to record one of the biggest rises in atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide in 2019. And the reason for this, if I've understood this right, is that um, uh, of the carbon dioxide, which uh, is emitted in all sorts of ways, um, there are what we call natural carbon sinks in the world. So there's uh, our oceans, there are forests and so on. And uh, the problem is that as the levels of CO2 are getting higher, they are less effective at taking in carbon dioxide. So you can plot a graph and say, well, you know, we've noticed carbon dioxide rises every year, but it's rising even faster because the natural sinks, forests and so on, as we've said, are less able now to absorb the amount of uh, carbon dioxide that they should. There's nowhere to place it. Uh, so, um, yes. yeah, a bit of yeah, a grim and story. Not a, not a very nice story to start on, I'm afraid. And, and no. um, another reason why 2019 is going to be uh, uh, a pretty bad year for this is because the, the, the summer of last year, 2018's summer, was quite a particularly hot and dry one, as we know. Yeah. Um, and if you have a particularly hot and dry summer, for one reason or another, that um, uh, can cause the forests of the world to not grow as well, I mm. believe, if I'm, re- if I'm reading yeah. into that correctly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, therefore, if you've got less, less growth in the forests, you've got uh, less ability for them to suck the CO2 out yeah. of the air through, through photosynthesis and their natural processes. So, it's, so, because it was quite a poor a relatively poor year for growth last year in the world's forests. That means that they're less able to uh, suck some of that CO2 out of the air this year. So it's um, it's not very good, I'm afraid. And then, of yeah, course, it's, it's, really it's, it's going to become a bit of a... Well, it already has become a bit of a vicious circle in that uh, every summer it gets worse and that causes the next summer to get worse and so on and so on. And it's just a bit of a... A bit of a... Uh, yeah, it's spiral at the bit moment. A bit of a runaway. Yeah. So uh, really... Um, Pete, we should be saying at the tops of our voices, shouldn't we? Well, we do it here. Hey, let's do something about <laughs> <laughs> uh, climate change. Since 1958, the research observatory at Mauna Loa in Hawaii has been continuously monitoring and collecting data on the chemical composition of the atmosphere. And in the years since they first started recording, since 1958, the observatory has seen a 30% increase in the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, caused by emissions of forest fuels and deforestation. So, mm. yeah. So, <laughs> I'm afraid uh, there's not a, a lot of uh, bright things uh, there. Um, anyway, let, let we, there was a, an, there's another story that we can go to because we. Um, Last week, actually, we started to uh, look at this. We, we, we mentioned it. It has to do with uh, seeds uh, being planted on the, uh, 
on the far side of the moon, hmm. you'll remember. So we, we, we've got an interview about that in, in, in just a second. Uh, th- this is really all to do with the fact that um, China's National Space Administration landed a rover. Um, yeah, that's yeah, right. It's called U-22, or uh, Jade Rabbit 2 is the name of the rover. The, the, the spacecraft itself that landed... Um, is called ah, and I've completely forgotten what it is. It's mentioned in our in our story. It's Changi Four. That's, that's right. it. Yes, yes. Phew, phew. <laughs> just came back to me. And um, what it's doing is going around and uh, doing some exploring. Um, this bit of the moon is sometimes referred to as the dark side of the moon, but actually it gets as much light as the other side of the moon. It's dark to us, though. We don't see it because of the way in which we are, as they say, tidally locked. Yes. Um, Yeah, so uh, the the moon uh, rotates on its axis uh, in the same period that it takes to uh, orbit around the Earth. So as it's... So as it's moving around the Earth and, and spinning at the same time, we only get to see one side of it because it's spinning at the same rate as it's uh, rotating around us, yeah. I actually learned that for the first time from Josh last time he was on the programme. Oh. <laughs> yes, good <laughs> in. <That's laughs> tidal locks. Tidally well, it, locked, it, yes. it, It's hoped that the, uh, the lander, the Jade Rabbit 2, it, it's hoped that it will make make a number of, uh, conduct a number of tasks, including conducting the first lunar low-frequency radio astronomy experiment to observe whether plants will grow in the low-gravity environment and explore whether there is water or other resources at the poles. Uh, And another function of the mission is to study the interaction between solar winds and the moon surface using a new rover. And last week we heard from Dr Nicole Kaplan, who's an old friend of the show, who works for the European Space Agency, ESA. And uh, here's another part of her conversation with our own Andrew Glester, who asks her about the seeds growing on the moon. And he began by getting her to explain what she does. I am a research fellow in exobiology. Exobiology is concerned with three main themes. That's the origin of life the limits of life, and then the possibility of life elsewhere. So I'm project managing nine experiments, all to do with microbes in space. Um, And there's one plant biology experiment as well uh, that are all destined for the International Space Station. So they're currently in development with some new technologies that have never been used in space before uh, for the purpose of biological research and We are developing them here at ESA with our partner universities and researchers with a view to have them launch later this year. Awesome. That's really very, very cool. It is exciting. Okay, so did you see the... How do you say it? Changi 4? Am I right? Changi 4. I believe it's called Changi 4. I saw some videos of uh, of the lander, which, which were awesome, but I had no idea that there were biology payloads on board until they were making the headlines. Mm. First plant to be germinated on the moon, uh, and then the headlines, which then followed a few days later. Mm. Which they had died, right? They had. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly so. Yeah. They, they died because the, it's too cold on the moon, it's too cold for too long, and nothing is going to survive there. Well, as, as it stands, yes, we don't have any, um, any technology that could sustain 
life uh, in those extremes uh, for that for that length of time, as you say. I mean, the temperature fluctuations on the lunar surface uh, vary massively, and, and they can get down to about I think it's about 170 degrees. So you'd be pressed to find a plant that would do well in that temperature. And on Earth, yes, we do have Arctic and Alpine plants that can withstand very low temperatures um, for entire seasons. But but that is an extreme that mm. we need to face. Mm. And then another another factor is the type of plants that we're sending on the moon, sending to the moon. Why? I believe this plant was an Arabidopsis plant, which is fascinating if you're a researcher and not very interesting if you're anything else. If you're interested in colonizing the lunar surface for food production, you're not going to be you're not going to be fed very well on a load of thalecress, which is uh, the common name for Arabidopsis. Do you know whether they were doing this because they wanted to do some experiments and they, they were going to find stuff out, or is it literally so they can go, we had the first plants on the moon? It might be a bit of both. From my understanding, uh, the Chinese Space Agency uh, put out a call to universities. Over 20 universities were involved in developing this this mission. From what the pictures show, you have a a germinated seedling of Arabidopsis in a completely sealed container. And my reaction to this was relief, because here at ESA, we take planetary protection matters very, very seriously. I thought if that's not sealed, that could be a, a potential potential hazard. Mm. Um, but it was it was uh, it was sealed in the way that uh, an astronaut would be in a in a spacesuit with a life support system, uh, given all of their essential requirements for life. And this would have been a comparatively low tech version of that, but mm. giving a plant what it needs. Do we actually learn anything from them doing this? Because we already knew that plants couldn't survive on the moon. So what, what have we learned? I think it would also be a display that yes, you you can grow things. Thing, things will things will germinate, um, but sustaining life is very difficult. And maybe that's the message that China were hoping to send was look you can do this but a lot of work is needed to then sustain sustain life on the lunar surface and you're listening to uh, love and science on bcfm radio um we uh, of course as we uh, start looking at science in the news and uh, behind the news uh, we're looking at science from all over the place and this is um uh, th- there's a story uh, which uh, we picked up from the guardian but again you can find it in all sorts of places um that th- there are people whose lives are badly affected because they struggle with what we call stuttering or stammering and it it, I, I uh, always feel that must be uh, a real challenge to somebody's confidence uh, in terms of interacting yeah. uh, socially. And uh, it, uh, the, the story here is that some researchers are looking at uh, the effects of, illiteral, uh, of electrical stimulation of the brain. Um, and they are, uh, they've been trialling it as an aid to treating stuttering um jamie have you had a look at this story this is kind of more yes, your, did, yeah. your part of the world when it comes to uh, science I know, I know i should stress you're not an expert in this field but uh, maybe you can speak <laughs> yeah um i think so so from what i understand of this so it's the technique is called transcranial direct stimulation i think they call it tdcs okay. um and what they do is they put some electrodes on the outside of 
of, of so basically on the scalp, um, similar to how they do for EEG, and they use one to stimulate and one just to receive the stimulation on the other side to complete the circuit and they target specific areas of the brain to um, promote or depress activity in that region and what they seem to be doing in this stuttering study um, is that they're looking at um, giving people speech therapy which we know is a well-used and highly effective method of training people out of um, this stuttering that they experience um, but actually making the process faster by using this stimulation so rather than it being sort of a cure it seems to be an aid to improve the speed at which the brain picks up an improvement in speech therapy so what they've done in this study is they ask the people who suffer from stutters and stammers to speak in time with a metronome. Right. Um, so they, they, they're told exactly a word per beat. So I right. am talking like this. Right, um, yeah. And that helps them. That's a form of speech therapy that's used anyway. And then what they're doing is, as they're doing that, they're stimulating them. And then in a control group, they receive, they have the same headgear on and they receive a little burst of electrical activity, but they don't receive this continuous stimulation. So that way they can see if it's, you know, just a placebo effect or not. Um, it seems like a great idea, and there is a lot of increasing evidence that transcranial stimulation does actually um, work for certain conditions. It was actually developed for depression, and so what they do is they stimulate, I think it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain that is involved in the cognition and symptoms of depression. So is this related to um, what they call ECT? Um, I think it is. It? I'm not familiar with ECT, but I think it's it falls yeah. into the same sort of category of stimulatory um, right. devices. Um, and what what the so there's 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 con, kind of conflicting evidence. There is a lot of good science done, um, and we can't say that this actually works for any one condition. That it is uh, absolutely efficacious cure for a particular condition but there's enough evidence to suggest that it is a good idea for um, therapies treating depressed persons or for um, there's, was, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence showing that it's good for fibromyalgia for example um, which is a condition where people experience pain without any clear origin for that pain okay. um, and so it's, it's really exciting but for this stammering study unfortunately like, we read this and then I sort of had a little bit of a look round there's another study published last year which actually showed that it didn't work for uh, the group that they tested with, with um, who suffered from this stuttering. And we, they used a slightly different method. Um, so instead of speaking in time with a metronome, they had to speak in time with another person speaking right. at a slower level. And they call that choral speaking. And I think if you look at that sort of critically, it's probably a lot more pressure for somebody who, where stuttering is kind of um, part of a group of symptoms that they have, where they feel, because of the stutter, they feel more anxious. Because of the anxiousness, they stutter more. Um, and I think if you're speaking in time with another person and trying to keep up with them, it's almost more nerve-wracking than yes. I think it would be speaking in time with a metronome. Yeah. So I think that in that particular condition, there was a lot of confounding factors. So mm. it could be that the... 
you know, the experimental paradigm for this type of studies has to be a lot more rigorous yeah. um, and a lot clearer to understand if it's actually this transcranial stimulation that's helping people mm. in these with, um, you know, with treating all these various conditions or if it's yeah. actually um, wow. the way they've designed the study. So. Yeah. Well, we really hope it leads to something yeah. useful. So more research required by the sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I had a very mild stutter when I was going through school about sort of 14, 15, 16, that sort of age. Yeah. And um, I found that it was worse when, uh, for example, like there's, there's the three of us here and you two might be speaking, and if I wanted to cut in and, and, and contribute, that would, uh, because I wasn't directly involved or someone wasn't talking to me directly, I yes. found it difficult to cut into a conversation without, yes. without stuttering. So you sort of try and launch into yeah. speech and yeah. it wasn't yeah. there or you couldn't rely on, yeah. re- rely on it. Um, yeah. uh, I guess because, well, whether I grew out of it, I, well, I suppose I did. Mm. But, um, well, I've got some figures yeah. here. It says oh, about, okay, one, about one in 20 children go through a phase of stuttering. Yeah, I mean, mine, mine was particularly mild, but, yeah. but um, I certainly grew out of it, yeah. A hundred adults, uh, one in every hundred adults... Uh, have uh, stutters or stammers mm. and uh, men are four times more likely to have a stutter than women oh, so wow. it's something which uh, affects huge huge numbers of uh, of people so yeah we wish wish them well for their research and hope that it turns <laughs> into something which uh, is useful for people with that that condition yeah. uh, now how tidy are you guys <laughs> Could um, you describe yourself as very tidy? I would not describe no. myself as tidy. If you were to see my bedroom, Malcolm, you would know. But <laughs> um, no, not at all. Not see, at all I, 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 I'm somebody who strives for tidiness. <laughs> I like tidiness, but I naturally am not tidy, which is a very conflicting way to live because, you know, <laughs> if you're not tidy and you're okay with it, that's great. But if you're not tidy and what you really like is tidiness, it's, 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 quite, it's quite difficult to live with, really. <laughs> You're a constant battle with yourself. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you'll be pleased to hear uh, Netflix has a series all about tidying. It features a charming, energetic Japanese woman called uh, Marie Kondo uh, and her interpreter, uh, also called Marie, and people at the end of their tether with the mess in their house. Wired magazine even sees the Marie method, as it's known, as a potential solution to cyber clutter as well, so getting organised on the internet. Uh, Chris Stiff, who's formerly here uh, at the University in Bristol, is a lecturer now in, the psych- in psychology at Keele University, and he's read uh, Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying, a simple, effective way to banish clutter forever. And uh, he tried the method himself and then wrote about it for a popular science magazine, uh, so, or rather for a magazine called Popular Science. So when I spoke to him earlier, I asked him whether he could explain the appeal. I think everyone has this notion, has this feeling that they could be more organized and tidy and particularly around january it's the time where everyone kind of thinks right time to get myself in order be that tidying the house or maybe going to the gym or anything like that and so it's the time is ripe for people to kind of hop on this and say right let's try and revise what i'm doing and do things better do you think most of us go around with a weight on our shoulders that oh i really should have done this you know and that it actually makes us unhappy 
I think definitely. And, you know, certainly in terms of so psychologically speaking, having those kind of things hanging over you causes a lot of stress. It diverts your attention away from the task that you might be trying to work on because you're constantly reminded of it and thinking about it. And then if you talk specifically about tidying or decluttering, you've got actual physical visual reminders that you haven't done it. You know, if you've got a big pile of of stuff that you haven't sorted through, it's right there looking at you. You know, you can't get away from it. And if you can't get to, say, I know certainly my office uh, at the start of the year was a total mess. I'd sort of pick through things to get to my desk and I just think, oh, you know, I've got to get this sorted. I've got to get myself tidied up. Yes, and there's always that nagging feeling that you're wasting time or money or losing things. Right. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of people, I know particularly myself, struggle with getting rid of things. So she mentions in the book a, a lot about discarding and her, her one of her central premises is discard first, go through everything first. And before you do anything else, choose what you're going to get rid of. And that's like a key thing is like picking the things that you don't want anymore. And that is actually quite quite nuanced and quite difficult and she talks she 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 kind of um i think it's almost an experience sharing thing when i was reading the book a number of things she mentions i was like oh yeah i feel the same like she was saying well it can be hard to get rid of things that someone bought for you that maybe you don't use so i thought yeah well it is isn't it you know if someone buys you something you feel terrible getting rid of it but she sort of talks she talks you down almost talks you through it and says look they gave you the gift that was the thing they wanted you to have it you were happy to accept it they're happy that you've got it if you're not using it it's, it's something you can get rid of if you want. Now, now, I know you won't have thought about all the aspects of this, but with, with your psychologist hat on, why, <laughs> yeah. why do you think we are so attached to things? I think um, there's a number of reasons. One is uh, that it kind of it might remind us of that person. Um, it sort of it could be a sort of sentimental attachment. So we feel those sen- sentimental uh affect towards things very powerfully and particularly if that person maybe uh, is no longer with us you know has passed away or something it's quite hard to get rid of stuff um there's a sense that you'll kind of um you'll lose it and you'll never you'll never get it back and i think i think that's one of the main worries that people are like well what if i get rid of something and then i need it and again she mentions this in the book she talks about how a number of all her clients the ones that have got rid of stuff very rarely have they realised they needed something they got rid of afterwards. And if they have, they've just gone and bought bought a new one or whatever. It's, it's usually something quite cheap. And But, yeah, so I think people just uh, feel these very powerful emotions. They feel guilty, you know, if someone's spent money on them or if they've spent money. So, you know, if you've bought something expensive, you think, well, I can't throw that out. It costs so much money. You know, you feel guilty, feel... Sometimes it goes to extremes, doesn't it, where, you know, we talk, we talk about people who have a problem with hoarding. Right, right. How? Again, I'm not. I'm not uh, putting you in a position of speaking as a as a, as a, a, a clinician. But um, how do you think that comes about? That we people have extreme, where where clearly their life has broken down because they you know they can barely get into a room or right. or function at all. I'm not sure what the what the sort of internal process is that causes that, but uh, it must be based on this just sense of uh, absolute terror if they were to get rid of things because if you've ever if you've ever seen programs where they talk to people they kind of are aware that what they're doing is a bit uh, you know abnormal almost you know that what they're doing isn't isn't standards behavior but yeah. nevertheless they can't they can't rationalize it it's an irrational feeling yeah 
So, Marie Kondo, clearly, in, in, in your article, you're very positive about a lot, a lot of what she does. But you, you do sound a warning where you say it could be actually problematic if you really embrace this model and you just can't see it through. Yes, that's right. So with any task, uh, usually uh, failing, usually failing a task, psychologically speaking, isn't that good for us. There are certain tasks that if you fail, but you kind of know why and see that you could achieve it in the future, failure isn't necessarily bad and can even be a galvanizing force. But for a number of other tasks, if you try and do something and fail, as you can probably imagine, you feel quite demotivated and that demotivation can, if you're already feeling a certain sense of demotivation and a lack of life satisfaction, that can be quite damaging. You can think, well, I tried this thing and I've, come, I've failed. I'm useless. I can't. And sometimes that can generalize. We call it a global attribution where someone will say, I failed at this. I'll fail at anything I try. I can't do anything. And so, as you can imagine, psychologically, that's not a very uh, good way to be. So that 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 is with any endeavour that you undertake, that is something to sort of be wary of. That failure is possible, and I do think, as well, I say this in the article that the method she outlines is quite intense. Uh, it's quite full on, and she herself says that you know this is this is a really um, full on thing where you know her clients. I think they take like a couple of days, you know, to do it with her standing over them. So I think to do it yourself, I certainly didn't follow the method to its absolute entirety. I, I sort of did my own little tweak on it. But uh, yeah, so it's a big task to undertake uh, and failure is, is possible and, and that can be uh, unpleasant for people. And I have to ask you, uh, is your office now very tidy? It is actually. It's still tidy, but I still have. So... Uh, Marie Kondo wouldn't be happy to hear this, but you're meant to do everything all at once. Like right. I say, that's quite difficult. So I've done bits of my office, and I've got a, I've got a, it's not a massive, it's not a very big office, I should say, it's tiny, and I've got a corner that I've still got to kind of go through. But my attitude towards it is very positive, and I think one of the, and it's simply a matter of just having some time to do it. Whereas before I read this book, the thing that was stopping me was thinking. Uh, some sort of block of like, oh, I just don't really know what to do with all that. What am I going to do with all that stuff? You know, and so I just sort of put it to one side, you know, I'll deal with that later. But now I know if I if I have the time, I can just sort through it very quickly. Uh, she is very clear about the sort of things that, you know, you can get rid of and how you might feel about certain things and what to do with them. So I'm very confident I could I could sort um, the little untidy bits out quite quickly um, so but yeah it's still tidy at the moment and I'm still folding clothes and things how she suggests which I found really useful yes yeah, so I'm and I think my attitude's changed toward things I'm quite ruthless about getting rid of stuff now Chris Stiff thank you so much for talking to us hey, you're welcome and that's Chris Stiff talking to me earlier. He's formerly from Bristol. He was speaking from Keele University about Marie Kondo and the Marie method for organising yourself. And Jamie was uh, waving her arms in that and saying, <laughs> you should see what I've been up to. <laughs> exactly. I was absolutely thrilled when I saw this story on your list of things for today um, because I'm actually smack bang in the middle of Marieing my house. Um, so this is a programme that's been on Netflix as... Uh, 
uh, Chris was saying. And she really is a fantastically great person to have been put on TV. Like she, like Marie Kondo is full of life and just full of energy. And she's just so like perfect and pristine herself. Like she's she inspired me to be like her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it just looks like she has her life in order. And so I thought, right, this I'm going to do this. Yes. And so the step one is to is is always clothes. Now um, I am a bit of a shopaholic myself, and I do like to buy clothes. Um, do you have so clothes? Do you buy clothes that you don't then actually wear? On occasion, yeah, I've definitely I've done got better done on that. better at it. The older I've got, and the more you know. Well, the less money I have to spend on <laughs> things I don't need. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's actually great. So you make a big pile. You have to pick up each item one by one and decide if that item sparks joy for you and whether you like it or not, whether you decide it does or not, you put it aside. And you can also have a maybe pile. So when your sensitivity to joy is heightened, you can <laughs> go back to the maybe pile. And yeah. actually, it, it sounds very airy-fairy, like it yeah. does. But actually... It has been such a positive experience and I am I really it have enjoyed it. So yeah. normally when I've had to reorganise my wardrobe, it's been somewhat of a negative experience. It's like, you, Jamie, you have to get rid of some of your stuff because I've always been moving as a student from city to city, house to house. And so it's always like, I have to get rid of some stuff because this stuff is not going to go to the new house. And it's always been sort of, what can I get rid of? Mm. Whereas this has been such a positive experience. It's like, what do I own? How much do I like it and what do I keep yeah. and then the, what you get rid of is just the stuff that doesn't fit into that category. But then for example you see uh, a toilet brush doesn't bring me a huge amount of joy uh, but it is uh, quite useful It's a necessity, <laughs> it's exactly in the house. So how does that work with the philosophy? So I think that's it, I think you have to take Marie Kondo's method with a pinch of salt, like I've had to adapt it to be anything that makes me feel good but also things that make my life better, like a toilet brush <laughs> you know is, a, is a necessity better, yes. like it makes life better because when yes. you have a clean bathroom yes. you know you have a, yes. a happier day yes. you know so you kind of have to make it your okay. own um and it has been a really nice experience and i understand you know the kind of the psychology of it because if you if you treat cleaning like a negative thing you can actually get into sort of a cycle and like you were saying you know with chris he was saying that you know if you fail at it you yeah. are unlikely to do it again. Yeah. But I think what I liked about Marie Kondo's program is that she doesn't judge people for how long they take or how much stuff they had to start with. It's the process takes as long as it takes, as long as you get to the end. Yeah. And you said it for yourself. So it's not like you have to have your whole house done in like eight days you know it's like just do just keep doing it just keep plowing through it just keep working on it and at the end you end up with something that really works for you uh which i think is a good way to approach any task okay are you inspired josh we're gonna have a revolution in josh's life no <laughs> no at the, at the at the risk of failing uh to uh was it Con Marie, my house? At the risk of failing to to complete it, I'm I'm not going to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to want to take a look at what the fuss is all about, the Con Marie method is on Netflix now. This is Katie Melua, and you are listening to Love and Science on BCFM ninety three point two. And 
It's me, Malcolm Love, uh, joined by Jamie Thackrow and Josh Warren. And uh, we don't have much time left. I, I did say uh, at the top of the show that we'd be talking about what happened to the Megalodons. I know you've all been thinking about that. <laughs> what happened to the Megalodons? How did they perish? Was it, uh, was it an asteroid? Maybe not. It might have been a supernova. Um, but uh, that's a bigger story than actually it turns out we've got time for so uh, I mean we've got more to say about it so um, we're going to uh, run that uh, next week we've got an interview uh, that Andrew's done uh, for that uh, so we, we, we're going to uh, just pick up on, on, on a couple of other stories that are in the science news this week uh, this is about um, birds basically letting a scientist down he, he, claimed, he thought that um, birdsong was uh, a clue or the the the, the ways of, the way in which birds sung that there was a beautiful hypothesis that male birds sexy songs indicated the quality of their brains and yeah. uh, uh, apparently so this was the thesis he was working on and it it turns out that when he tested these birds they were no the the ones with the most beautiful sounds uh, weren't the smartest yeah well so there are of course lots of male birds that uh, that sing in order to attract uh, attract a lovely lady and um and the ladies uh you know, will uh, assess the quality of the song from the male bird and um, make the decision as to whether they're a suitable mate or not. Um, and so this scientist had the hypothesis that uh, a male bird with a nicer, cleaner, uh, I don't know, b- better constructed song, I suppose, um, that that was an indication that the bird was smarter Um and so, therefore, if the lady was to choose that that bird, um, a a smarter male might be better at finding food, might be better at caring for the young, might be a a uh, a, a better mate um, to uh, to hook up with. So um, uh, he was trying to test this, and it turns out that he was he was he was wrong. Unfortunately, it was <laughs> apparently among flirting budgerigars, which are uh, uh, good name for a band. Yes, <laughs> it is a great name for a band. Isn't it? The females preferred males that performed food finding tricks. There you are. Mm-hmm. Sounds obvious to me. Anyway, we had another story about coffee. We're gonna we're gonna bump that to next week as well because we're joined. Speaking of um, impressive males, by. <laughs> <laughs> John Ford. Hey, John. And, and, and John, don't, for, what don't, an introduction. don't forget to stay tuned to the show because uh, after the news, uh, John Ford is going to be getting uh, Bristol home. And uh, John likes to come in here and tell us what we didn't include in the show this week. Yeah, well, the stories of the old birds you've had in your life. Yeah. <laughs> That's very hurtful. <laughs> Sorry, I've ruffled your feathers now. Oh. <laughs> this day in 1896, uh, the first what do you think was handed out to somebody? Say the date again. 1896 on this day, the very first something was handed out. It was, it was a fine. Somebody right. was fined. They were fined the principal sum of one 
shilling for doing what, do you think? Speeding. Yes. Ah. Oh, wow, yes. Good guess. Was that a guess or did you... <laughs> no, it was, was, a, guess. That it was a guess. Yeah, I mean, it's not very sciencey, I know, but, of course, science has gone on to uh, invent faster and faster and faster cars and our infatuation yeah. with speed, which has caused yeah. all sorts of problems, hasn't it? Because they but used to have people walking in front of the cars. They did. They, with red flags. And yeah, and it was the Red Flag Act. <laughs> That was used to find this person uh, one shilling. It was a fellow called Walter Arnold, Arnold rather, in East Peckham in, in Peckham in Kent. Um, it would have how, to be, how it? fast do you think he was going? Oh, and, and what do you think the speed limit was? He was probably racing along at what. 12 miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> is it, is it, I was going to say was it, 10. <laughs> was it definitely an automobile? Or, or yep, just, yep, yep, yep. Or was yep. it a horse and carriage? Well, <laughs> actually, it doesn't say that here, but um, no, it was the, part of the Locomotive Act, so mm. which was the Red Flag Act, so we, we guess it was an automobile, yeah. Um, the speed limit at the time was 2 miles an hour. No. Yeah, 2 miles an hour. Mad. And he was, done, he was done for doing 8 miles an hour. Oh, my God. I mean, if you got done for going four times the speed these days, <laughs> yeah. really, really big. And do you know what? It wasn't until um, the, the later on, it wasn't until uh, around about um, 1903 that the speed limit was lifted to 20 miles an hour, and then later it went up to 30. So we, we bang on about 20 miles an hour now, but, you know, going back then, we're only just reinventing what's already been reinvented. We are. We are. Stay yeah. tuned uh, for John after the news. Getting Bristol home with John Ford uh, from Jamie and Josh and me. It's been our pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Don't forget to join us again next week and have yourself a great evening. Mm-hmm.